You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for the 25th of July, 2023. It's a Tuesday. It's been a long time since there's been a program. This is the first program since October 17th, 2022. And the the programs that will be coming up over the next I don't know, weeks and months, they won't really be recorded on the day. Um, there's not going to be any return to the live streaming like there was before and things like that. But there will be... Podcasting is pretty easy. Um, so uh, today, finally, after a long time of a lot of the cables for the podcasting remaining in boxes and finally dug them out. So um, we are going to today, a lot of today's episode is really going to be seeing <laughs> as I go through from question 162 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Hopefully everything goes okay. Hopefully the the sound is all right and everything else like that. When you when you when you start doing programming for a while, you you think all the settings are where they used to be, and you hope that they are. You really hope that they are. And uh, if if anything sounds weird and uh, is not really the normal quality, you can email me radio at gmail dot com. M e g i d d o at gmail.com sorry Megiddo Radio um, usually Megiddo is the one word that people most people struggle with spelling alright so we're going to into it and we're going to be dealing with large catechism once the large Lord willing once the large catechism has been finished and we're not a million miles away from finishing the large catechism I'm hoping to go into the confession of faith possibly looking at the directories as well, directory of public worship, directory of church government. There's also other things on family worship. So um, I remember when I thought about doing this years ago with regards to doing this, the series that we're doing through the Westminster Larger Catechism, I was actually quite reluctant to do it. And one of the reasons why, and back then I wasn't an ordained minister, but I was probably because I thought so many people were doing it. And yes, there are some people doing podcasts on it, but it's not that many. And yeah, so there have been people who email me and seem to appreciate going through these kind of things. And hopefully it's a blessing. And I will still continue to do some of the critiques I did before. You know, there's critiques of a certain nature that I will still continue. I am not going to be able to do the same research I did years ago. It's just not possible. And um, But feel free if there's things you would like me to respond to. I will be doing the odd one or two here and there. Not as much as years ago, but I will be doing some things here and there. So you can email me at radio at gmail.com on that. So we will be going through the Larger Catechism. Lord willing, we'll be going through the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and also, um, there's a few other things that 
Lord willing, hopefully, we'll be able to go through different topics and um, feel free to send feedback if there's something you would think that would be beneficial for to be gone through. I'm hoping to do more podcasts as well on probably in a more, uh, for want of a better term, Jeff Riddle direction. I mean, Jeff Riddle's probably one of the best guys on uh, the text receptus, the Greek, the underlying Greek of the New Testament. And um, kind of a topic I've kind of parked for a number of years. So hopefully getting back to that, you know, if you're if you're looking for somebody on Texture Receptus, Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter One, Paragraph Eight, probably Jeff Riddle's the best person to check out. Um, Word Magazine. That's if you want. If you're interested in, well, we should all be interested in that. But um, he's probably the best person to check out in that area. But I'm hoping to do more things as well in relation to that. So that's the plans going forward for the podcast from getaradio.com, um, and hopefully. We'll have an episode out once a week. Okay, with all that said, and with all that, we're going to start with question 162 because it seems kind of strange as I look down here. I was going to start 163, but it's been quite a while. 162 really is, what is a sacrament? And it ties in with what we'll be covering here in regards to the questions. I don't know how many questions we're going to get up to. Uh, possibly up to question 167. I don't think we're going to... I'm going to deal with broadly sacraments today. And then perhaps then the next episode on the larger catechism, we'll look at baptism by itself, and then we'll look at the Lord's Supper, because they're huge issues and they're huge areas um, in, in those. So question 162 of the Westminster Larger Catechism says, what is a sacrament? Now, what is a sacrament? It might seem like a strange word to you. Uh, don't be afraid. And I know we might not be able to find this word in the Bible, but it is a biblical idea. It is a biblical concept, just like you cannot find the word Trinity in the Bible. However, the the teaching of the Bible clearly points towards a trinity, like God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Also, there are what we would call sacraments. And what is a sacrament? Question 162. A sacrament is a is an holy ordinance instituted by Christ in his church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those who are within the covenant of grace the benefits of me- his mediation, to strengthen and increase their faith and all other graces, to oblige them to obedience, to testify and cherish their love and communion one with another, and to distinguish them from those that are without. I suppose in a, in a very simple way, what the sacraments do is they distinguish those who are without from those who are within the covenant. Now, there will always be a mixed nature to the visible expression of that 
either covenant or church, the visible church. There will always be those within the visible expression of that church, those who are not truly born again, not truly regenerate. Uh, And those people who are truly regenerate are called the invisible church. The whole idea between, between visible and invisible is the visible is what you can see with our human eyes. The invisible is what we can't see. And really known only to God. Who's who? We don't know people's hearts. But a sacrament is a holy ordinance. So this is a holy ordinance. This is something we're to take seriously. It's instituted by Christ in his church. And just to take that first point, well, it it was like last October. We were kind of, we, we looked at this question a little bit. But, I think for the benefit, really, of the the following questions, what does it do? It signifies, right? It seals and it exhibits. Think of a sign. What does a signpost do? A sign is not the same as the thing it's pointing towards. If you're traveling in the direction of traveling, say, in the United Kingdom and you're in England and you you want to go to London, and you follow the sign pointing toward London. Now, the sign is not the exact same thing as London itself. I think we all agree with that. So we would want that signpost to point out and point us in the right direction of London itself. We would not stop at the signpost itself because the signpost, they are connected to each other. They are connected to each other as in the sign points toward the thing signified, you know, in terms of the, the signpost and London itself. But think of it that way. It signifies, it points towards something else. And then it seals. Think of a, a document. Uh, some of you have gone to university. And if you've got a degree from a university, you have a stamp at the end of that degree that will authenticate or at least give confidence to the person who's looking at that degree, that award of whatever body it is, that this is real. This is genuine. This is what it says it is. It gives confidence in what is stated in the document itself. So a seal increases the confidence. And if you think of the, the sacraments, the two sacraments of the New Testament, be that baptism and be that the Lord's Supper, these are things that signify, they point toward Christ, not towards themselves. We kind of sacramentalism, but they point towards Christ, who, in, in terms of the water, points toward the one who, with his blood, washes away our sins. And in terms of the the bread and the cup, and or the bread and the wine, it points toward the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. His body and blood, what do they do? Just like the bread and the wine nourish, just like the bread brings joy to our, you know, nourishes us, and also so does the wine nourish us and also brings gladness to the heart. 
And that's spoken about in the scriptures as well. So, and it signifies and seals, and it it brings greater assurance to the believer that they truly belong to Christ. So, in thinking of that picture of that seal once again at the end of a document, you have more confidence in the promise that is made in that award of a degree or whatever else it is. Well, for the true for the believer. From the very weakest believer to the strongest believer, the, the Lord's Supper, this is for older communicant members now, this is not for small children who can't discern their faith at a young age, but for older children, older adults, really young adults onwards, you know, from at least 12 onwards, they would examine themselves to see if they've been to faith, and they're at a, such a state where the, the, the elders in the church says this person has a credible profession of faith. A, a young person really can't come to that point in in their walk just yet. But these things, the water signifies and point in baptism points towards something beyond itself. Something beyond just physical water. It, it seals of something far more important than the washing of the, the filth away from outside of our body. That's what water does. It cleanses. It washes. Um, it does other things as well. Uh, it, it can also be a picture of judgment. It drowns as well. That was there's these pictures alluded to in First Peter um, uh, with Noah and the ark and things like that. So signifying seal and exhibit. So exhibit. Think of it like this. It's almost as if. Well, it's not almost as if it is if that the gospel is visibly shown to the church. And in doing so, it signifies and seal. It signifies points towards Christ. It, 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 it gives greater confidence of to the church and the blessings to the church. And it exhibits towards those. Now, it only benefits those, sacraments only benefit those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Not faith in the water of baptism, the physical water of baptism, not faith in, in the bread and the wine that they are physically consuming. It will not benefit them. Actually, it'll, they'll be eating and drinking damnation unto themselves should they do so in unbelief. Okay. What is a sacrament? And, and Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 27, paragraph 1 states this, that the sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. And also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world. And solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to what? His word. So, and to confirm our interest in him, we need these reassurances. We need this visible exhibit, these tokens of his love to encourage us. The sacraments are really for all. Now, the administration of, of, of baptism is really for all in the visible church. You know, he promises to be God unto you and unto your children. It's really to discern whether these people are part of the visible church or not, whether they're in the visible expression of the covenant 
or not. Those are the the recipients of baptism. When you think of the Lord's Supper, it's a little different because it really requires that the person can examine themselves to see if they be in the faith. They have to be at such a maturity level before they can partake of the Lord's Supper. But apart from those little differences, the sacraments are for all who are part of the visible church. For those communicant members, and communicant members are full members, you know, you might have a young child, they may have been baptized as a baby and an infant, and then they grow up in the church, and they make a clear profession of faith. Again, you can't know that, and you're not looking for perfection from them, but before the elders of the church, and they state that they've trusted in Jesus Christ, they endeavor to live a life that is consistent with their profession of faith. Again, not look for perfection. The church should really be for the weakest among us to help us who are believers in Jesus Christ. Again, it's all for the glory of God, all for the glory of Christ. But we're not looking for super Christians only to join the church. And I want to point that out. Um, these things exhibit truths that are for all of faith. Even if the faith is as small as the tiniest mustard seed. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you ought to be in a church and seek to be a member of of the church and do so with the guidance of the elders in that church and in such a way that they may not have you join immediately because they want to get to know you first and that's there's good reasons for that by the way. And they want to know if you have if you're if you're living as a Christian and and they don't think any bad they don't think badly of you but they're doing it for your good and for the the benefit and blessing of the church that you will be joining into but in that moment in time you can attend that body you may not be a full full voting member or anything else like that with the full blessings and benefits of that you'd be classified as what we would call an, an adherent but at the same time, there's a lot of you can still come by faith in Jesus Christ and meet with God. You can fellowship. You can do all many, many things the members can do. But there's but do seek for membership down the line with the guidance and leadership and blessing. Um, take advice from the eldership because really, when you become a full member, you're really saying we are willing to be shepherded by these under-shepherds. Don't look for perfection from them either, by the way. Um, but that's um, a lot of that. Now, so, now let's think about this word sacrament. I, I'm not entirely sure. Let's see, last October's episode, really dealing with we did start looking at sacraments in the last episode, but I'm not exactly sure what detail I went into. Sacraments, again, the word sacrament is not there. From what I can see in my own study, the word sacrament in English that we have really comes from the word sacramentum in Latin. And historically, years ago, it was an oath of allegiance that the Roman soldiers would take to the emperor. I think it's been kind of borrowed from that, probably. I might be wrong on that. 
Uh, but it, it is probably the best word that we have. The problem with just using the word ordinance, ordinance really just means a command. Yes, baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances, but I would I, I would venture to say too that there are many ordinances in the Bible that we've commanded to do. They're not sacraments, though. Sacraments are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. If you just want to use the terms signs and seals of the covenant of grace, in the Old Testament you had circumcision, which has been replaced by baptism in the New Testament, and you have um, the, the Passover. Notice how in the Old Testament both of these were bloody replaced then by the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. So, in the Old Testament, they pointed towards something, the Christ who would come. Uh, in baptism and the Lord's Supper, they really point back to the one who has come and shed his blood, so there's no more shedding for the remission of sins. But I think this has been dealt with a bit in the last episode, so I don't really want to go over too much old ground again on that so that's question 162 question 163 uh what are the parts of the sacrament the parts of the sacrament are two the one an outward and sensible sign used according to christ's own appointment the other an inward and spiritual grace thereby signified so so the this parts of the sacrament, what the parts of this, this, these what are signs and seals. So there's an outward and a sensible sign. Again, think about the, that signpost that's pointing towards that city that you're going towards. There's an outward sign. It's um, and the outward signs are water, which point towards something else, bread, which points towards something else. Um, and wine that points towards something else. And these are outward and sensible signs. Now, the word sensible can be misunderstood today. The word sensible, think of in the 17th century, it's not the way you'd say, uh, Tom's very sensible with his money, isn't he? It doesn't really mean, it didn't mean that back in the 17th century. Bit of a kind of a, a false friend kind of going on here. But the word sensible, really think of the word senses, your taste, touch, smell, eyesight. That's what we're talking about in terms of a sensible sign. So there's the outward expression of that. And what's wonderful about, say, take the Lord's Supper, when you partake of the bread and the and the wine, there is that sense of that nearness of Christ. And you get the same Christ, but you get Christ in a sense better. And I can't remember who said that originally. I think Joel Beakey was quoting somebody else when he was preaching on the Lord's Supper. So I'm really quoting somebody else, and I, I don't know where the original quote comes from. So you have this when you when you're partaking of the bread, you have the smell, you have the the taste, you have the the sense of nourishment, you have the sense of closeness. You have the sense of encouragement. You know that, you know when you, feel, you haven't eaten and you feel weak and tired and you feel better after you've had a meal. Well, so it is when, we have, when, we, when we're away from Christ, but when we feel his nearness and that outward sensible sign, 
it reminds us of the closeness of Christ. It reminds us how he is our food and drink. It reminds us in baptism that if we look to him by faith and by faith alone, to Jesus, who is signified and sealed even in the baptism, that we are washed by his blood. We are as, tr- as, as surely as that water which washes away the filth from off your, your, your flesh and the water is being applied. Well, the blood of Christ will cleanse you from all your sin. The, sac- the sacrament of baptism is not an, in- an individual thing. That sign and seal, yes, it's being applied to a specific person, but there's onlookers. And when, when the, those people in the congregation on that day of a baptism, you yourself, though you're not being baptized, and maybe not a f- member of your family is being baptized, it should be there to encourage you to look back to your own baptism. Even, I don't want to skip ahead here, but how is our baptism to be proved by us? So we're to look back to our own baptism. That we are, it's signified and sealed that we belong to Christ. We we do not live for ourselves. Our life is hid in Christ. We We are baptized into him. We belong to him. We have been crucified with Christ, yet not I. Galatians 2.20. So we don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for Christ. The old man is gone. So these are wonderful, wonderful encouragements in an outward sense. But not to be confused with the inward reality to which they point toward. Again, the signpost towards London, while it is somewhat connected to London, and and there's a greater connection, really, between these signs and seals, they are means of grace. When we, by faith, when we we partake of the bread and, and the wine, we are encouraged and we feed on Christ and we are blessed. But it is Christ who blesses us not even just the physical elements themselves. And it points towards an inward and spiritual grace, thereby signified and pointed out in the sacraments. Again, we're talking very generally today. As we're talking about both of the sacraments. Because sometimes we'll talk about, yeah, baptism is a sacrament, but what does it mean to be a sacrament? What does it mean to be a sacrament rather than just... like? Baptism is not just for the whole world, it's for those who are recognized as being part of the visible church. And the communion table is not just for everybody. It's not for the pagan. It's for those with a credible profession of faith in Christ who have themselves also been baptized in the in the past. So these things are important. Now, I don't want to get into all 
It's probably one of the best readings. You know, some people may struggle with what's the difference between sacraments and all the things that are not sacraments. You know, the, the Greek Orthodox Church, which is not, doesn't have, have, have the gospel anymore and things like that. Uh, I would not view it as a, where the true faith is preached anymore. It's departed from the faith, but I wouldn't be as knowledgeable of the Greek Orthodox the Eastern Orthodox Church as it would, would it be Roman Catholicism, same with Roman Catholicism. It would be apostate and departed from the truth, especially since the, the Council of Trent back in the 16th century, almost 500 years ago now. One, one area where that's very pl- plainly evident is during some of the canons on justification, where justification by faith alone, anybody who believes that is declared to be anathema. And those things have not been repudiated. Actually, they've been repeated even in the recent printings of the the Catechism of the Catholic Church. You know, people will talk sometimes, can a Roman Catholic be saved? Yes, they can be saved, but not if they believe the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And I do believe that they will come out of that church, that apostate church, eventually. Yeah, a lot of people can say, well, is is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. I was saved and went to Mass, Roman Catholic Mass, a few days later. Now, I, I said, well, where's the Bible being preached here? So I didn't go back again. I read my Dewey Reams translation of the Bible, not the best translation in the world. <laughs> that was the one I used in my early days of being converted. If you don't know, the, the Dewey Reams translation was done around, roughly around the same time the authorized version was done, but it was done as a, an, eff, an effort to the Counter-Reformation. It was translated by the Jesuits in, in a place called Reims in France. That's what I had in the early days. Eventually, I stopped using it, <laughs> realized what it was, um, because I got it in a Catholic bookshop when I bought it. But with all these things, with the sacraments, it's important to realize, getting back to our point, these are for the church. They're for the church. With things like, the other one that could be, you know, a bit of a question mark over people might struggle with not to get into all the reasons why, maybe marriage. Okay, Roman Catholicism sees marriage as a sacrament. It's not. Um, it's not a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, for one. Uh, John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, probably probably one of the best things I've read concerning going through all the things that would claim to be sacraments by the Roman Catholic Church. And the one that comes closest would be seeming to be legitimate would be marriage, but you don't have to be a Christian in order to get married. So two unbelievers can, and if, you know, they can and legitimately can get married. A believer should not marry an unbeliever. For anybody who's a Christian, you should marry somebody in the Lord. And um, so that's one way that they're different. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are really for the church to distinguish between the visible and the invisible church. Can baptism be given to somebody who's not a believer? Sure. Um, 
but it's not supposed to be. <laughs> um, whereas it would be completely legitimate for a minister to marry two unbelievers. And um, it wouldn't be a good idea to marry an un- a believer with an unbeliever. That's a bad idea. Um, it's good for society. Marriages are good for society. So just picking that one example, in case you're struggling, what's the difference between what are sacraments, what are sacra- uh, what's sanct- um, what signify and seal of the covenant of grace versus those other things that would claim to be. And if you want to read more, I think it's in book four, uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin probably one of the best treatments I've I've read on that. Right, so now we're looking at question 164. I think we're starting to catch up where we were or where we left off really the last time. And now we're coming into how many sacraments hath Christ instituted in his church under the New Testament? So it says, question 164, under the New Testament, Christ hath instituted in his church only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. One way I would just put this is this. The Reformed Church, and we would obviously argue biblical Christianity, teaches what is known as the regulative principle of worship. Or also called the second commandment. And the second commandment really lays out how we may approach God. What do I mean? How we approach God. If you've read the second commandment, you'll see references to not making statues and images and things like that. But that's really the product of something that has started in the minds of men. Men's brains are idol-making factories. I think that was a pretty close quotation from John Calvin. The idol starts in the mind of man, and he forms it with his hand. And, a, and an idol doesn't have to be a painting or a picture or a statue, but that's usually what they become over time. And the person then ends up worshipping not the true and living God, the God who's without parts, the, the, the God who is here or Israel, the Lord our God is one God. They start worshipping a multi-parted being who is a creature and no longer the infinite God who is without beginning, without end, and who in whom there is no shadow of turning. We create something in our minds and automatically of necessity, it is not the God of the Bible, right? So we cannot approach God with our own inventions because we start imagining things about who God is. We can only come to God and worship God in a way he's commanded us. And if he has not commanded us to do something, it is forbidden, Think of Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, they offered strange fire before the Lord, not commanded by God, and they died. They died. So, what, in, what can we have as sacraments of the New Testament? Because this is part of worship. Baptism is, is part of worship. The Lord's Supper is part of worship. And I think too, right, there's a, there's a 
every Christian background, probably bar Quakers and a few other people who are very highly mystical and groups like that, but generally speaking, across 99% of professing Christian groups, whether it be, okay, I'm not saying Roman Catholicism and Christianity, but it include this and other things like that, the sacraments are taken very seriously. And why is that? We know it's part of worship. If you went to a baptism and somebody started using, I don't know, Coca-Cola rather than water, ridiculous example, but you'd be offended. Why is that? Well, because it hasn't been commanded. Uh, and look, this is not a knock in my Baptist brethren, and <laughs> please don't take this as... Um, but a lot of my Baptist friends... And people like Baptist preachers I still listen to and are excellent preachers, they'll talk about why they don't baptize infants. And they'll say, well, because they believe they'll bring up the regular principle of worship and God must command it in order to, for it to be done. And it's a very good principle. And of course, of course. And so they'll bring up, okay, we can't do this because it hasn't been commanded. Now, I would say that the application of that is missing a few details, especially in a few areas. But isn't that so important? I think we, I'm, I'm saying we almost know instinctively we shouldn't bring our own inventions before God. If you're going to someone's birthday party and you know that they like movie A rather than movie B, Okay, you got two DVDs, you can bring two DVDs. You know that they like movie A, but they don't like movie B. Well, what, what should you bring them? You should bring them what they like, what you know that they like. And you say, well, how do we know what God likes? Well, he's kind of revealed it. It's, it's in the Bible. We've been told. Preaching's part of worship. Praise to the Psalms are part of worship. Told in the New Testament worship since the, the fall of the temple to bring in instruments. Uh, we, we have prayer in worship. Uh, we have the sacraments in worship. We have vows given in worship. We have the benediction given, different examples of that in uh, in the, the Old Testament or the New Testament epistles, such as the end of Second Timothy or Second Corinthians chapter chapter 13. Yeah. The end of Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless thee, Lord keep thee, Lord make his face shine upon thee and give thee peace. So we need positive commands. And look, in the effort to do that, we may disagree over how that is applied. But at least I'll have brothers if you're, if you're attempting to do it. And we're imperfectly getting there. At least you're trying. At least you're trying. But we must think of what does God want? Not does not what does man want? Because if you're thinking about the will of fallen man or the will of sinners, even if a person's converted and you're going with the, the average person, what they want to have, well, get the entertainment out. Get the videos ready. Get those children entertained so they don't get bored. Have all the, the the entertainment because for the natural man, 
For a sinner, his natural inclination is not towards the things of God. These things are going to be boring to him. But our hearts and our minds need to be changed to what is wonderful, which is the worship as ordained by God. But the problem is, which has happened over the centuries, the church always gets bored with the worship of God. For example, look, if you go back historically in the Church of Scotland, when the, back in the 17th century when there was pretty much, well, there was just one church, only li- I can't remember exact the exact date, but it was only when when does when do hymns come in? When do the instruments come in? Because they believed that something was lacking in worship, that the 150 psalms given by inspiration of God were not enough, and there there needed to be a help. I think I think you see this in the. I think it was in Jonathan Edwards' day, but I'm that there need there's something lacking. And this happens not in apostate churches, but genuine true churches. The gospel's preached and they'll do tremendous things, but this creeps in. And we've always got to think worship is to God. Now, wonderfully for the believer who comes and worships before God, God comes down and meets with him with the people of God, in a special, in a wonderful and joyous way, we truly meet with our God. That is a wonderful and blessed thing. But we're meeting with God, and we ought to tremble before that. So thinking about worship, thinking about what we're offering before God, we can only do in these signs and seals of the covenant of grace what God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has told us what he has instituted and nothing else is allowed. This is why we have two, not seven, sacraments or more depending on the church, okay? We do this, I I feel, professing Protestant churches will do this for historical reasons, but are we doing it for biblical reasons? And I say, take that principle that principle which I think most of us will have when it comes to these sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper and apply it to every element of worship. How many things would it get rid of? I challenge you. And I don't get it completely right. I don't. Over the years, I've re-examined things. But do so prayerfully, asking the Lord's forgiveness when we fail and we do. And look, I I may get off. I don't want to. I, I want to be careful about this because I want. I don't want to come across as harsh. It, it is not easy to bring in changes into churches. It is not easy to. You might be in a. You might be a minister listening to this. You might even be in a, a church where they have hymns singing, right? For example, and you may have come to a conviction that we must sing the Psalms only or something like that, and that's hard. I'm not saying that that's easy. And you must do it prayerfully, guided by the Spirit of God. But, at the same time, worship is so, so important because we're offering it before God. And if we want a reminder to know how, how serious worship is, Leviticus chapter 10. 
the most important person, the most important being we are to please in worship is not fallen men. It's the infinite, holy and righteous God. But we are so blessed to be in his presence. So I want us to think that natural inclination that we have, that many professing Christians have when it comes to the Lord's Supper and baptism, baptism we know must be with water. And it must be only those who are commanded. You could Baptists and uh, Peter Baptists would disagree and different things. But we'll say this, we need biblical warrant, don't we? To say who is baptized. We'll come to different convictions about that. We'll come to different positions about that. But we will both say it must be a positive command. And I would just encourage you, apply that same strictness to the rest of worship. Look, if you're a Baptist listening to this, I'm also going to encourage you. Of course, I am. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, for the greater unity of the church, to look into who should be baptized and all this kind of thing. I, I hope that that's coming through. I hope I'm expressing what I'm saying here. I think we all have a, 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 an inbuilt as Christians. We know how serious baptism is, and the Lord's Supper, and we should be strict about these things. Only what God has commanded, as God has commanded it, then also let's try to do that with all of worship as well. Question 165, what is baptism? So we are about 45 minutes in. So let's do a little bit on baptism. Now, if you have, if you, and it's quite possible, no, it's actually not quite possible, it's quite probable that I have not gone through something you would like to be explained better. Please don't be shy. Please ask me. We get a radio at gmail.com. I would be happy to go back over something again. I, I am aware that sometimes I can go through issues too quickly in these podcasts and not be the clearest on them. So I would encourage you to it's always different look when you do a podcast right now i am staring at a white wall in in my study and uh, there's not people in front of me to either a frown at me because they don't understand what i'm saying (laughs) or um or nod and they're like yes okay i i you i see if you understand me i don't know you could be right now just scratch your head not not really understanding what I'm saying. And don't be afraid of that. And please feel free to email me, we get a radio at gmail.com, and I will try maybe the next program or something like that to go back over one of these points where I was not as clear as I could be. I don't want these things just to be understood by the PhD person or the person with the master's or the person who is in college level. These are things that I pray by God's grace would be understood by everyone and be a blessing to everyone listening so question 165 what is baptism baptism is a sacrament okay we remember sacrament a sign and seal of the covenant of grace so answer baptism is a sacrament of the new testament wherein christ hath ordained the washing and notice how christ hath ordained 
regular principle of worship, okay? The washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself of the remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit of adoption, resurrection unto everlasting life, whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. So let's go through that answer from question 165 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. What is baptism? Okay, a sacrament. And we, we, we looked at what a sacrament is. It is a sign, points towards something else. And a seal, think of a seal as something that encourages something that is like a guarantee, something that confirms or ratifies or makes secure of something. Again, it's there for the, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that every time you go to a baptism and you see that sign and seal with your, you see water being applied either, to, it could be an adult, believer coming in from outside the church, or a baby being baptized for the first time, that you remember your own baptism and who you belong to. And that if you're trusted in Jesus Christ, you too have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. You have been cleansed, and you surely have been cleansed, and it is there to be something for all the church that confirms the promises that Christ has made unto you, the believer who has faith in Jesus Christ, that confirms, ratifies, and makes secure, and guarantees and assures our hearts. We're not just, it's not just an individualistic thing. Baptism has been given to the church. It's not a family day out it's for the entire church. Yes, an individual is being baptized, but I really want to emphasize that really the whole church plays a part in that. And if we forget that, then private baptisms and evils that were seen centuries ago could creep back in. Now, so baptism is a, a sacrament of the New Testament, where Christ hath ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, notice there, and this is from the end of Matthew 28, that the baptism is in the name, not names, the one name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. To be a sign and seal, it says in this answer here, of the ingrafting into himself. So one passage that looks at that, Colossians chapter 2, verses 9, I suppose is it 10 and 11. Let's grab a Bible here. Be Colossians chapter 2, which really uses baptism and circumcision as a picture of, of union with Christ and those who have been brought into union in Christ and been circumcised, again, spiritually circumcised. They have been spiritually baptized. Uh, spiritual circumcision, spiritual baptism really point towards the same thing, you know, being brought into union with Christ and the picture being cleansed by the washing of the water and also the removing of the filth of the flesh. In circumcision, you see the removing of the flesh. And... And the flesh is corrupted. 
and fallen men. Sorry, the Col Colossians chapter 2. Sorry, I thought I had the right book out. No, I don't. Yeah. So Colossians chapter 2, verse, we'll read from verse 9, for in him dwelleth, and, and notice these you know, pointing towards union with Christ, in him. So we are in union with Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision. Notice how, in whom? In whom? In Christ. Verse 11, also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Now we're just going to pause there. Without hands, that's spiritual circumcision. This is not physical circumcision. Without hands. Verse 11 continues, in putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, this is the inward reality of the person who has faith in what has been pointed towards, signified. Verse 12, buried with him in baptism. So, yes, washing, but there's also this inward, you've been brought into union with him, and because you've been brought into union with Christ, you have been buried with him. It doesn't mean you do immersion. Okay. What the point of this passage is union with Christ, being brought into oneness with Christ, and because he's been buried, by the way, he doesn't go below the earth, he goes into the tomb and rises again three days later, but we have been buried with him in baptism, wherever you also are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. So you've also died with him. Referring, we referred to this earlier, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, pointing toward union with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Paul was not literally on the cross with him, and that's it, but he was in union with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I live. So we have died with Christ. We've been buried with Christ, buried with him in baptism. The whole point of this is union with Christ. We have in him been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. We've been raised by faith because he's been raised. You see, it's all pointing towards union with Christ through faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in, in your sins, like you were dead, now you're raised in Christ. Christ has taken your death by virtue of you being brought into union with him. His death becomes your death, as in you will no longer have to die for those sins you have committed. Christ has taken all that, and his perfect righteousness has become yours by faith alone. Positively, gloriously, wonderfully, joyfully, and triumphantly imputed to your account by faith and by faith alone.
and you being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you of the trespasses. So that passage really in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 down to 12, speaking about union with Christ. And this is kind of taught here in this question 165 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, it says, a little bit down, about four lines down, to be a sign and seal of what? In grafting into himself, or union with Christ, in him. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead body. So we have everything that we need in him. And because we've been circumcised with that circumcision without hands, we're in him. It says at the beginning of verse 11, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, in whom? Verse 12, buried with him. Oh, believers, (laughs) it is so important. That passage is so important to understanding what baptism is and that ingrafting into Christ. And by being brought into Christ, we have that sweet, wonderful union with Christ. We have remission of sins. We have forgiveness. Verse, Verse 13 talks about having forgiven you. Of all your trespasses. Verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. That was against us. At the end of verse 14. It says nailing it to his cross. Union with Christ. Ingrafting into himself. Isn't that wonderful? Of remission of sins by his blood. You see. We have remission of sins by his blood. Because of that union. With Christ. His death means we will no longer face eternal death. It says in question 165, and regeneration by his spirit of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life. Again, a lot of what you see in Colossians chapter 2, verses 10, 11, and 12, risen, risen. Verse 12, buried with him in baptism, wherever you are also risen, you are risen with him through faith risen with him, that resurrection unto everlasting life. So regenerated by the Spirit, you're adopted into him, union with Christ. You've been called sons of God by adoption, not like Jesus is the Son of God because of his eternal relationship with the Father, otherwise known as eternal generation. He's eternally begotten of the Father. That is a, a, a begotten relationship, unlike a creature, but because it is light from light, God from God, as the Nicene Creed would say, this is a different type of relationship, but this is an eternal relationship. The, the Father is the Father from eternity past, the Son is the Son, and always will be. But we, by faith in the only begotten Son of God, have been adopted as sons of God. And because of that union with Christ, we were just talking about, and resurrection to everlasting life. We, because he was raised, we will be at the last day, our, our physical bodies will be raised. Our, our spirits sit at the right hand of the majesty on high in heavenly places because we're in union with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. We today sit in heavenly places in Christ because of this sweet and wonderful union we have with him as believers 
in Jesus Christ. And it says in the end of question 165, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church. They're, you know, they're solemnly, openly admitted into visible church. They're recognized. And it's not about whether people even, I think we can, yeah, okay, profession of faith, yes, for an adult. But it's all, at the end of the day, recognizing who is and who is not according to teaching of Scripture, who is part of the visible expression of the church. At the end of question 165, and entering into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. And entering into, I'm going to read that part again, an open, this is open, and professed. The visible church is to be visible. It's not to be some private uh, thing we tell the world. And into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. Hopefully that's an encouragement to you as we go through this while we're now we're into it. I think we're going to do... I think we're going to stop right there because I think we're going to get into... I won't say difficult territory, but these are questions. Question 166, I do not want to rush through. And I thought I would get through more questions than I did. Apologies for that. But hopefully we spent... If you... To wrap your minds around... I know, yeah, there's the picture of washing with baptism. The word baptize, even baptizo in Greek, really has the idea of washing or washings. It doesn't. It doesn't really have the sense of immerse. In a very general sense, it can mean dipping. It can mean depending on the context. And try to find a quote here by J. G. Voss. I mean, the mode of baptism. We get into that later, whether sprinkling or pouring or immersion really shouldn't be a massive. They're all valid, like as being somebody who adheres to and believes in the Westminster Confession of Faith, all three of them are valid expressions of baptism. And and throughout the Christian church, there's been people who have allowed for all three from all different persuasions. But I'm just going to read this. This is about what it means to baptize. I found this interesting earlier. This is J.G. Voss. Very helpful commentary on the Westminster Larger Catechism. This is the son of Gerhardus Voss. And he said this. Is it true that the Greek word translated baptize in the New Testament literally means to immerse? And... J.G. Voss wrote this, certainly not. In its New Testament usage, the Greek verb baptizo literally means to wash. As will be seen, we're looking up Mark 7, 4 and Luke 11, 38. In both which texts this verb is used and where the idea of immersion would obviously be out of place. I think in places it can mean that, it can mean dip and things like that, but not 
always. It says, the Greek noun baptismos literally means washing, which is as is evident from Mark 7, 4 and verse 8, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10. To suppose that tables were cleansed by immersion is absurd. Yet the Greek text of Mark 7, 4 speaks of baptism of tables. The confident claim of Baptists that baptizo and baptismos in the New Testament usage mean to immerse, and immersion will not stand the test of careful scrutiny of the passages in the New Testament where these words occur. I think too, what I would just encourage, look, if you are a person who would disagree with me, don't agree with me, just go to, it's kind of hard to do this, but you, if you don't have a background in Greek, but if you do go through, there are, I think you might be able to do this through Blue Letter Bible online. And if you go through all the usages of baptizo, you might be able to see it there. But the general use of it is, and baptismos and baptizo, which is where you get the word baptized, which is really, it's not re- in some sense, it's not really a tra- it's not really a translation. It's more of a transliteration because the translator really doesn't want to get involved in interpreting for the because of the obvious controversies that arise in that but i would just encourage you to go through the look at the different passages and to see the range of meaning that goes on and does it always fit that it's immersion does it always fit that it's this that or the other um but that's just by the by i mean I'm I'm sure there's not going to be one statement I am going to say here in this podcast. It's going to completely change your mind. If you ever change your mind on baptism and your view on baptism, these things take time. They do. And it is amazing. It is such a, a simple picture. Water being applied by one person to another person, by the minister of word and sacrament, it shouldn't be anybody else in minister of word and sacrament, to a a sinner, both of them are sinners, but the whole point is it's something applied to the person, pointing towards a washing that we all need by faith in the Redeemer. And it's there to be quite a simple picture, isn't it? If, If we're... Regardless of what your opinion is, it's there to be there as a simple picture. But we struggle, and we I think the, pro- the problem is not the picture. The problem is us. The problem is us reading things into it that are not there and missing things that are obvious right in front of our nose. And I think, well, I know that the sacraments are there. To, they're quite simple. The New Testament sacraments are, they are, simple outward elements to encourage us, to build us up, and to bless us in our faith, to bless the entire church. And uh, so I would encourage us to see what the Lord would have us see, how it points toward the same Christ, how both sacraments point towards the same Christ. I want you to consider this as we finish off here, as we finish off this program. Theodore Beza, a man who lived in the 16th century in, in Geneva, was kind of one of the f- 
the men to follow after John Calvin in his efforts to reform the church in Geneva. He said this, For Christ clearly is offered to us in baptism as regeneration. And in the Lord's Supper, he is offered as nourishment for those who have been regenerated. But nonetheless, it is the same Christ with the same power of the Spirit to be communicated by the same faith. So if you have difficulties and you're scratching your head and you're just think about how does this point towards the same Christ? How is Christ offered to us in baptism? Somebody else is getting baptized, but how is Christ set before us as we we're in the congregation when the baptism has been done or when we partake of the Lord's Supper? How are we being nourished by Christ and how are we being blessed by him? This has been Paul Flynn. Talk to you all again soon.